Alchemy Alchemy is an ancient practice associated with science, chemistry, physics, astronomy, astrology, art, symbology, metallurgy, medicine, and philosophical analysis. And despite that these sciences were not exercised in a scientific way as known today, alchemy is the origin of modern logic. Welcome to the Alchemy of Truth. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Dear listeners, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to another episode of the Alchemy of Truth with your host Nasser al-Khatib. I have with me here today uh, my co-host Anna Rose Zaid. Anna Rose, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. And also my guest for today is brother and Dr. Yasser Mursi who is um, a postdoc fellow at the University of South Australia at the International Centre for Muslim and Non-Muslim Understanding. Brother Yasser, as-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullah. Would you prefer brother or doctor? Definitely brother. I don't want to get into the doctor thing. Yeah, Thank you, no. doctor. How about Bahru al-Ulum? Not yet. <laughs> no. And also with us today is uh, brother uh, Muhammad Tabba, Dr. Muhammad Tabba, <laughs> <laughs> who is from Melbourne University, who is completing his PhD in something. Criminology. In yeah. criminology, yes. So, so brother something Muhammad. Something is a... Major field <laughs> in the industry. <laughs> studies of something. <laughs> Almost gen- generally in all universities, something is a big thing. They are both visiting us from <laughs> Melbourne, and uh, brother uh, Yasser is actually visiting us from Adelaide. Well, he's from Melbourne. So, welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So, what we're going to be doing today, inshallah, is we're going to be doing an interview with brother Yasser. It's about racism. <laughs> oh, okay, fine. So, we're <laughs> going to do. <laughs> An interview about racism, yes. So the reason why we want to interview you, Yasser, about racism is because different people use it in different contexts. So we have, for example, uh, people talking about Arabs being racist to, for example, Indians and Pakistanis. We have um, other people uh, talking about reverse racism, etc. And so what we really need to understand is what, uh, what defines racism as opposed to, for example, what the media or what some politician or what some you know, a talking head on, on TV defines as racism for their own uh, agenda. So the first question that we start with is, what is racism? How would you <laughs> define racism? Tough question, but I think if we are to narrow it down to an answer we can give quickly, is we should recognize power as an important feature of racism to distinguish it from prejudice, other forms of discrimination, and so forth. And it's often been said that racism is form of discrimination or prejudice that has power that privileges one group of people who have been identified through constructs like race against another group of people who have also been constructed as an inferior race. Uh, the term race can has historically shifted to mean different things. Inevitably, it is about a group dynamic between uh, a superior and the inferior group. Okay, so how does racism manifest in society? Okay, I think this is where it becomes a little bit more interesting, I think. The question for me really is asking, how can we imagine society without racism? How can we imagine our place today and what we have created, constructed, Mm. assumed about society without both historical forms of racism through institutions, labor, discrimination, law? So society and, and racism for me, or even modern society, has been built on historical forms of racism. Can you quickly go through what you mean by that? Some examples? We'll take a simple, very simple and easy example to recall because it's most people know about it. Can we imagine, say, America, North America, the United States, as a nation state without centuries of slavery? Can we, uh, can we imagine Australia being constructed what it is today without exploitation of indigenous people's history, land, and so forth? 
So then from what you're saying here, racism is not just about looking at, for example, a person with a different color and saying you're a person with a different color and then like a derogatory yeah. name for that person. Okay, I don't, that is an aspect of racism, but it should never be narrowed down to that. Okay. Uh, if we narrow it down to that, we miss so much of what how harmful racism is and how it persists. Because today you might say the symbolic terrain or the legitimacy of racism as a language has deteriorated as in and declined a little bit. It's no longer acceptable for people in mainstream to say things about the superiority of their race or the superiority of their group or superiority of their culture. It's often met with distaste, dislike, and so forth. So that aspect of racism, that symbolic element, has declined, you might say, and it's often been cited that we live in a post-racial world. When we look at the material historical imbalances between first and third worlds, I think that's still part of kind of institutionalizing of, of racism. But you know what? Let's ask the question differently. Let's be a little bit counterintuitive here. Rather than spend a lot of time examining what racism is, let's ask a different question. What is anti-racism? And in examining anti-racism as an opposition to racism, when I recently read a book by Alana Lenton, Lenton a professor at the University of West Sydney on racism and anti-racism, asks a very interesting question. Um, we often assume anti-racism is simply the opposition to racism. But what does it mean to oppose? And I think when we begin to examine how we oppose racism, we begin to understand of how it's persisted, how it's maintained itself in different ways, different forms, different guises, different manifestations, and so forth. To answer your second question there, no, we should never reduce it down to simple cognitive, intellectual, verbal observation as, oh, I don't like you because your skin color is black. I think um, that is harmful, but it's only on the surface. When we look at recent media coverage, for example, about Adam Good, for example, yeah. yeah. So, like, one of the girls from the crowd uh, screamed something at him, you know, a derogatory term, yeah. and then it was given a lot of media attention. And uh, recently, I think a week ago, you know, a lady traveling from the U.S. to a country in Africa said, I'm traveling to Africa, I hope I don't get AIDS, just yeah. kidding, I'm white. You know, she got a lot of flack because of it, and she was fired from her yeah. uh, position, and she was, you know, a lot of hate was hurled towards her because of that because she was seen as the embodiment of all racism yep. so what i'm understanding from you is this is just something which is uh, i guess you could call it dumb racism because people yep. are you know dumb enough to just say what they're thinking There's, it's been given different names casual racism um all sorts of the race the racism of the person on the bus on the train who gets recorded on the phone who swears and tells people to go back to where they come from and mm -hmm. so forth the real question I think we should begin to ask, especially if we're part of a minority group who feel that they've been, have suffered or have obstacles, is to resist the idea that this is simply all that racism does. Mm. I mean, the real question is this. What makes a person associate, in the Adam Goods case, associate an indigenous man or a black man with the figure of King Kong, the ape, the monkey? There is a historical narrative that has been born out of a certain hierarchy where we have sewn together the myths of the east of africa and associated with the body of the african man that doesn't pop out and it's persisted and secondly it's persisted in such a way where certain people feel that they have not so much a right to say it but they feel that they can say it they feel that you know even in a culture of political correctness yeah uh, that truth of saying it has been denied them and the association they make between the kind of exotic and the dangerous and whether it be Asia or Africa is an historical one and reducing it down to an individual at one level um, denies a proper and sustained reading of why people can and do and persist to say that and that sustained reading I think 
will broaden racism's understanding to both institutional and historical. And I think when we begin to speak to Muhammad later, even the legal tradition has been built on kind of racialized hierarchy. Mm. I, I don't want to deviate from this topic, mm. but uh, if we're talking about this, uh, about your, your definition of racism, or let's say the academic definition of racism, we're talking about a very specific wave of racism built on colonization, right? And so then when we, we're talking about different forms of racism, for example, in, in the uh, many of the Arab countries, for example. Or the Emirates, specifically. Uh, not the Emirates, really, because even like I'm, I'm hearing that in Lebanon, Lebanon and Jordan. Yeah. yeah, so in, in many countries in the Middle East now, there is uh, a very clear phenomena of uh, discrimination against people of, you know, Indian, South Asian, um, or even Filipino um, backgrounds. So not only are they treated badly, uh, they're always looked at, you know, with a very superior, I guess, look. You know, they're they're paid poorly. They're, um, you know, if they if any of their rights are taken from them, nobody really bats an eyelid. In some countries, even the the instances of of um, um, suicide are very high because these people are treated so badly and this i'm guessing there are different phenomena as well in other countries uh which are just as bad towards you know from one uh race or from one community to uh, a minority community so isn't that also racism yes yes and i mean look when people yes it is okay uh, in one sense it is when people say things like well there's two things that you have to be cautious of or what i'm cautious of when people say things like uh, universal uh, racism is universal uh, there's racism everywhere. There's racism in Emirates. There's racism in the Arab world. It's not just here. You have to be cautious a little bit because often they're attempting to exonerate or free or even defend the particular racism that we belong to by universalizing. And often there's a hint that it's somehow a universal condition. It's not born out of a particular history. It's not born out of a particular moment. So the first point is when people say, you know, um, let's not view racism as universal. Uh, sometimes the point is this. It's socially constructed. It's part of a historical narrative. It's part of institutions such as the state that has repeated itself in even in the Arab world. And to suggest that it's innate to the human condition um, and therefore only as a political tool to therefore exonerate or free uh, European forms of racism, it, it has to be problematized. That is not to say that you turn a blind eye to forms of discrimination everywhere around the world. Mm. Um, racism you know there has to be a distinction as well i mean <coughs> one aspect of it is racism as a language has often been built on a social construct such as race which simply in many ways does not exist okay and this construct of race has been tied into the building of the nation state at one level so when you ask me this question let's use the emirates or any arab world where there's discrimination to minorities what if the institutions that we have inherited in modernity and one of the major institutions is the very concept of a nation the very concept of a state requires an in and out group requires, and when you in integrate it within the kind of liberal economy, if you will, to use a simple term, it requires the exploitation of certain groups. And the easiest form of exploitation is uh, disempowered minorities. Yeah. So at one level, institutionally, to be successful in this system, you may need to discriminate and be prejudiced towards others. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the more successful you are, the more t uh, the more likely you can be able to then begin to integrate minorities within because your, your culture is solid and so forth, right? So at one level, to view racism as universal is very different from saying it's global. And I can concede that it is global, but the universal has that hint that we are all somehow innately likely to be racist. And that needs to be problematized because I think racism is the result of a particular political 
culture, institution, and above all, language. If we look at the Islamic tradition, we see many different texts in the Quran and the Hadith that specifically talk about racism or discrimination or judging people from their outer appearance, from like, for example, Sahabis or, for example, Prophet I'm saying that you're all the same. I mean, essentially, you know, no man is better than another man except in God awareness that he has. Mm. So then aren't these also forms of racism that are being acknowledged divinely? So when we're talking about racism as a universal concept. I want to go back to the idea that discrimination against certain groups manifests itself in very different ways. One could argue, for for example, and in prejudice as well. So let's make a distinction between prejudice, discrimination, and racism. One could argue that if you want your children to marry a fellow Muslim, that you have a prejudice, that you have a bias. Prejudice doesn't necessarily, or the belief that my way of life, or that what I choose as the truth, I want to maintain, okay, doesn't necessarily mean that's racism. That just means you have a prejudice. It's when you begin to discriminate against others, target others, harm others based on that prejudice that it begins to slowly become what we call discrimination. Mm. Racism is a historical way to associate an institutionalized form of racism based on a construct of race. Yeah. So for me, it has a historical moment. Um, of course, that's not to say that there were never, you know, pre-modern, if you like, instances and languages that attempt to prevent us from harming others through discrimination, harming others through appearances or, or tribal differences or skin color even, yeah? Mm. But I think it's important that we maintain a fidelity to the meaning of racism within its historical context that has a trajectory from religious wars to the building of the nation state and its two major dominant paradigms of racism towards Jews and blacks in order to understand how it's manifest today rather than kind of globally suggest that everyone has a problem with the other that's not necessarily true secondly racism has particular languages particular beliefs it's often assumed that racism is simply about a dislike or hatred to the other that's not necessarily true it is also about a desire for the other sometimes a sexual desire for the other sometimes uh, a love to control the other and control here is important Okay, it's not I dislike you, I fear you, I don't know you. You know, the traumatic figure of the African man, it was also because they were very sexualized. There was this kind of ambivalent feeling towards blackness. Yeah, I was attracted to it, but disgusted by it, feared it, but loved it. It's not simply about hatred. It's the same with Islam. There's an attraction to it because in some way it's so intrinsically tied to our history. We share prophets, right? We share the origins. I mean, in one way, the East grew out of Greece and the Middle East, as well as the West. Yeah, so there's this contest. So, you know, racism is not simply about I, I see somebody that's different. It is also about how to deal with proximity. We're close, you know. Um, sorry to go on about it, but, you know, I was having... No, no, of course, it's very important. So I was having a joke yeah. with a few friends about the billboards in Sydney a few years ago, I think, when, you know, uh, one of the Dow organizations that we have in the community wanted to overcome Islamophobia, so they decided to put up billboards along major streets saying Jesus is a prophet of Islam, we love Jesus too, and so forth. And the assumption is here, if we overcome, if we overcome ignorance, if we overcome difference, if we overcome the assumption that we're so different, we can come together and overcome racism. Well, no. I mean, at one level, racism is precisely about the proximity. You know, uh, I was reading the editorial responses to this billboard, and there was this young girl traveling with her mother, and she burst out in tears when she saw this billboard. She was like, Mommy, the Muslims are trying to steal our Jesus. You know, and that's the thing. You know, Christianity was built in many ways, or c- in many nominations, contesting who is Jesus. 
And along comes the Muslims with another contest. You trigger an entirely violent history about the idea that you have now another interpretation of Jesus, which fundamentally challenges your own. And this is one way, I mean, the very fact that immigrants are coming here, living here, quote-unquote coming here, living here, yeah, because in one way, the immigrant story has built nation-states. So, you know, it's not like we're from beyond and now we're here. So the idea of proximity is also very deeply entrenched into the construction of racism. It's not just about difference. It's not just about oppositional views and so forth. It's also about how to handle desire for the other. Mm. How would you respond to people who say things such as, I am colorblind, or we live in a post-racial society? (laughs) You want the PG version? (laughs) 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 This is a late night show. (laughs) The colorblindness is a a wonderful attribute, but at one level you have to be very careful because it may... you can't be colorblind in a society that's still built on forms of uh, exchange between a disadvantage and advantage. So if, for example, the majority of people in the world who live under $10 a day uh, are non-Europeans, yeah, and much of their historical struggle is because of the colonial legacy and past and the persistence of an economic system that takes from the fringes towards the center, you know, if, if that is the result of colonialism, being colorblind in a sense is being blind to inequalities and injustices when you say all are equal. Well, maybe essentially we're all equal. Maybe even legally you can argue we're all equal. Maybe you can say we're all you know, from the same soul. And but politically speaking, the reality is we're not equal. We've had to overcome various different obstacles. We've had to ov- we have to start from various different positions. And to bring into visibility how race not only maintained but produced many of these inequalities is precisely why colorblindness is a problem. You cannot, be, if you're colorblind, you may well be colorblind to inequalities and injustice. That's, I mean, that intuitively is my response. I don't think, I think it's a great sentiment. And this is a trick. You have to be careful here because the anti-racism of today gives you an exchange of this kind of moral, beautiful language of equality. But what it also takes away from you is your right to be critical of a history that has created advantages for, y- for few and disadvantages for many. I think just in commenting on that colorblindness, the idea here, I think it's more about a person not engaging in or pretending not to engage in um, casual racism. Because when they're saying this, they're not really thinking of you know the millions of people living in poverty or, or, the institution. or the institution of racism. They're just thinking, for example, if they walk down the street and they see a black person, in their heads they'll be like, oh, a black person, what is black? I don't know, it's just a human being. Like that, you know? So it's just very shallow, I guess, understanding of what, what racism is. Yeah. Moving into Australia, or putting a focus more on Australian um, Muslims. Muslims, or the Australian Muslim community, do you think that racism or internalized racism is prevalent in the Australian Muslim community? And which one? Of course it is. I often use this analogy. Racism is its a condition that has established our society. It's not independent from it. It's very hard. Even when you're, uh, even when you're walking down the street saying, "Oh, look, the black man is human," that is, <laughs> why are you saying that? You know, you must recognize something mm. about the necessity to bring them back into a category. And who says the construct that is human is n- itself not the result of a racialized modernity and a hierarchy? That is very interesting that yeah. you say that, mm. and okay. we'll be getting into that later, inshallah. All right. So you know, stay tuned <laughs> <laughs> on that level. So the idea that Muslims or anyone can escape a, a language or a society—look at one level—the very fact that I can be privileged enough to 
one, live in a first world country, be educated in a first world country, speak the language of power that is entrenched within, be able to resist, whether it be through liberalism, democracy, humanism, or anti-humanist tradition. The very fact I can pri be privileged from that is the result of centuries of exploitation. And it just so happens to be that I'm lucky enough to be in, if you will, the spheres of power. One level, you can't escape that. And we see that internalized, to borrow the, the term from Anna Rose, you know, in the way we have attitudes towards foreign Muslims, third world Muslims, Muslims who have come here, but they haven't yet quite accepted and understood that Australia is an integrated country. You know, you, you always get that idea that the FOB or the ethnic is some a couple of steps behind. And it's always, or even when we travel back to our home countries, you know, the, it's, it's as if I'm, I'm some sort of celebrity because I can speak English, you know, my passport's like a green, green light to you know, chopping the dowry in half, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm always, I'm always the privileged one. Okay, so of course it's in because it's institutionalized, and you know that. And every time you go back to these countries, you know that Europe, there's this ambivalent relationship. They may hate America's foreign policy, and but they still want to send their sons to the private schools there. Mm. They still want to live there, yeah. And this, this is precisely racism is not just about hatred; it is about this ambivalence. So, of course, we've internalized it, and we are, if you will, we carry the language um, where we begin to discriminate um, towards others. I mean, I found it particularly fascinating that in response to Islamophobia, we became even more Islamophobic, yeah? That actually takes us to uh, our next question, okay. which I'll be asking now, but I just want to share with you somebody I was talking to today on WhatsApp um, who casually mentioned that Arabs are lazy. And when I challenged him on, like, why would you say Arabs are lazy? He said, well, what have the Arabs done in the last 50 years? That's Was where this the a Muslim? Yes, yes, he was, Muslim. he was an Arab as well. So it was but interesting. On that comment as well, do you think racism is um, shown through the Muslim community different to the non-Muslim community? Mm. Or mirroring the same way exactly as the, as the non-Muslim community? Um, to use an analogy to try and explain what I, or one dimension of what I'm saying, I don't think this analogy fully explains everything about racism. But to answer your question about whether or not Muslims um, mirror the, the racism of society, the answer is yes. But we have to be careful here to avoid the idea that being a racist is something you can point at and a non-racist is something you can point at. Imagine racism is a bit like a virus, okay, or a cold or a flu or a, a language, you know, and you can catch that virus at key moments in your explanations of things, especially in cri moments of crisis. How do you explain that the Arab world has not developed? Yeah, and it's when you, then you rely on this language to explain things, and often it comes. It's reduced to the most ridiculous statements. Well, Arabs are lazy; they live in the heat, and they you know they can't get their act together, or they lack the Enlightenment language. They don't have secularism. So, in order to explain crisis, you the only way we can imagine. The progress of history, the only way we can imagine success is through, you know, whites, through European civilization and all acts of departure from it. Therefore, proves that there's the reason why you're not successful is because you lack the European. And do Muslims act like this and talk like this? Yes and no. When, when we s describe worldly political events often and commonly, as I said, going back to the question, I found it interesting that Muslims were the, at most times, just as Islamophobic in their countering of Islamophobia. You know, for example, one way to understand racism in society is that the despised other, the minority group, be it the African, be it the Jew, 
was an object to help explain crisis. So when society was breaking down, rather than confront that, for example, your society has significant institutional problems, you project it onto the Jew or the African as the reason why we've lost, we've neglected, we've come to demise. Yeah, And it just happens in, in the heartland of Islam. When I did my Hajj, I remember waiting for an orange juice in line. It was, it was hot, air conditioning wasn't working. And the Bengali brother... Yeah, who made a mistake or some sort. An Algerian brother lost the plot, started swearing, grabbed him and said, you're the reason why we've turned into this. Wow. Yeah, that, that's a classical, yeah. classical, you know. And so one that we always find this. So here, let's go back to the Muslim community. The Salafi, the Big W, the Wahhabis, the bad Muslim. You're the reason why they don't mock us. You're the reason why, yeah. Uh, the terrorists as an example you're the reason why the people have misread the Quran you're the reason why the people who don't have the full appreciation understanding of the Isnad of Islam all the way back to the prophetic tradition you're the reason why we always participate in the scope gaming isn't it fascinating that what we do is we complain how a majority that is mainstream society um, chooses to scapegoat a minority and we do the exact same thing with our own minority yeah or the unintegrated, you're the reason why. Those who don't understand democracy, you're the reason why. When we begin to interpret racism or, or society as in such a way that it only allows for certain people to succeed, and by its nature, the majority have to fail. When you recognize that, you'll always have failure in this society. And all politics is, is about winners v. losers, and historically, losers have been shaped along racial fault lines. That's when we begin to interpret and resist the language of racism. But absolutely, to answer your question, are Muslims prone to this? Everyone is. Even you and I sitting here, there will be moments we lapse into it. There will be moments that kind of floats in the back of our head. Yeah? So, of course. But, again, uh, I'm not suggesting this is what the question is. Resist a little bit this idea that a racist is a racist entirely. The guy on the bus who swears at the immigrants, yeah, is the face of reason for a very convenient political language. Because they to become an object that can explain why we're not racist. The majority of people aren't like that. So when you pick on the working class racist of Cronulla, say, I heard Cronulla's not that working class, but <laughs> you, know, you know, when you when you pick on the working class of Camden, for say, it's a convenient because now everyone beats up on them. Everyone says, you're the, you're, you're, they're the last remaining bastions of racism. You fail to integrate into our liberal language. You fail to integrate into the idea that everybody's equal. They're not. You know, they, they're the, the simplest form of expressing racism in its ugliest language, but they've got it from somewhere. And it's a history. It's an institution and it's a language. And it's the easiest thing to do in the world. On a kind of nafsi equation, it's the easiest thing to do is to blame the weakest in society for your problems. Mm. <laughs> And in mentioning Islamophobia as well, you mentioned it previously. I remember about a year ago, uh, a, a number of brothers uh, with you know, uh, good meaning intentions, of course, created a Facebook page called Islamophobia Watch Australia. <laughs> and um, the attacks they got from the, I guess, the casual racists, the dumb racists, was almost matched by the academic Muslims who um, just, I mean, th they didn't accept that this page was a clear a record of Islamophobia in Australia at least and so my question is about Islamophobia and racism is Islamophobia racism yes and is Islamophobia uh, and uh, for example um, 
a definition as a, de- a definition just a person saying i hate muslims or a person saying all muslims are bad or is it something again much deeper and much more systematic like racism is that's how f- first of all racism is islamophobic racism yes so when people say it's not a race it's a religion i oppose the religion i oppose the nasty teachings so on and so forth how would you respond to that race this is a, div- a division between cultural racism biological racism the assumption that racism is only an attack against the way people look but in reality, it was always attack against the people's culture. All the body, the African body, the Jewish body represented, was an entry into the other person's culture. There's never been a clean division between the body, yeah, and the culture. It was also an articulation that, you know, I'm not attacking what you are, I'm attacking the way you think. I'm attacking your ideology. Yeah. Islam is an ideology. But that also assumes a particular uh, I- ideological view of things. And that's that your, your Islam or your culture is inscribed into the w- not only the way you look, but the way you behave, the way you talk. And to make a simple separation that Islam is something that floats outside of you that you chose, is to deny how you are an entire embodiment of your religion, of your cultural practices. It's not an easy division to make, to say, I'm against your religion, but not... Because the religion, like, you know, the EDL says this, for example, we can't be racist because we have Asians in our group and we don't attack uh, Asians, we attack Islam, the religion. But to make a distinction between the British Asian experience and Islam is too clean-cut. Dis- uh, the very thing that informs you as British Asian, and wha- uh, at least in the Muslim tradition, at least in the Muslim communities, is your religion. So we have to be very careful. And historically, it makes no sense. Historically, religion ironically came from religious conflicts. It was only during the uh, you know latter parts that it became scientific and it was premised on pseudosciences about the body and the race and so forth. It has always been a dislike from the other and the most informative figure for this is the Jew. And what's interesting about the Muslim is that we, we don't, we're not just a race. So we have to be racialized, which is an altogether different term. How do you mean by racialized though? We have to become an other that is seen as, if you will, through their, you know, their difference, their departure. And we, we, when we say racialized, they become involved in a hierarchy of us and them, but also, above all, an inferior, inferiorizing of them. But to the second part of your question about your, the group, uh, seriously, I, I know which academics you're talking about. And Is it you? <laughs> in our defense, please give us a break. <laughs> okay. Good intentions mean very little in politics. The first thing that I was upset about was that this, we know I go back all the way to the earliest part of this interview. Let's examine racism through anti-racism. Because if anti-racism is doing the very thing that racism is doing, it becomes a false solution. It becomes a cover for real racism. Yes. This anti-Islamophobia was doing the very thing that Islamophobia wants to do. Islamophobia is charging you of being an inferior subject, of lacking democracy, of lacking liberal values, of lacking passion, or that Islam has no essence in regards to justice. And then along come these well-intended brothers and say, no, we have all these things. Yeah, We have justice. It's only a minority that don't have it. It's only a minority that are terrorists. And again, they begin, if you will, to scapegoat a minority. So inevitably what you're doing is rather than uh, dismantling the idea that one group of people have the right to judge you and l- locate you along their own criteria, yeah, what you inevitably do is say, no, we share in your criteria. But the real problem is the guy across the road. The real problem is the Muslim with the big beard. And what's stupid about this is you're not going to win this battle. Not only will you not convince people, but they, you cannot give major, um, mainstream society the arbitrary power to distinguish between good and bad Muslims. Because they won't be able to. Uh, who's, who's, you could have a brother with a big beard who, li- who wears the thobe 
who's very conservative but has a heart of gold and wouldn't harm anybody. But he looks exactly like the threat that you, the people who are on the street bring, call, bringing down the West and so forth, calling for the destruction of the West. Yeah. So this idea of constructing good, be bad Muslim was the problem we had. First and foremost, yeah, you are establishing the very thing that racism wants to establish, a hierarchy between that which is European and that which is non-European. Yeah? And the closest you are to the European values, you're good. Further you are, you are, you're bad. That is not a counter, that is not an anti-racist movement, my piece. Yeah, so you mentioned before that racism is, is based on the assumption that there is a standard, there is a norm, and the norm is whatever, you know, liberal European we, 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 we call it, some call it whiteness, but yeah, the norm. Um, and, and whiteness, it's not just a norm, it's a norm of privileges. Yeah, mm. where cer Certain people have privileges of being trustworthy, certain people have the privileges of being honest, and other people have suspicion. Uh, I said this course we were doing, a good way to understand this is simple episode of Law and Order. Yeah. So in an episode of Law and Order, um, the whole function of the episode is for us as viewers yeah, to engage in suspicion. Is this perp, is this person guilty? Is this person guilty? So me, my wife and I will be watching it and I'll be like, yeah, I think they're guilty because when they walked out of the hotel room, they had, you know, they, they look sweaty. And my wife's like, no, no, you've been distracted. They're not really guilty. It's the doorman. And we're in this atmosphere of suspicion as the, as the observer trying. And you know what? At this point in time, the guy who gets arrested by the cops is put in the, uh, you know, the interview room, asked a serious question. It doesn't really matter if they say they're guilty or innocent because guilty people are expected to say they're innocent. We don't buy it. We're cynical. We're suspicious. This atmosphere of suspicion is fundamentally how we should come to recognize the Muslim, you know, in Islamophobia. We are fundamentally neither good or bad. We are suspicious. Yeah. And telling everybody that 99% of Muslims are good and peaceful is irrelevant because that 1% is a suspicious 1% and it's any one of us at any one time. That 1% could be any of the 99%. Yeah. So this attempt to distance ourselves from the 1% won't work on one level. So, okay, that's the first thing about the norms, yeah? Because this, uh, here we're still participating in the observer, the viewer, watching the suspicious subject. And let's not kid ourselves. We belong to a cynical generation. If you go out on TV and say Islam is peaceful, it's beautiful, it's lovely, it's all... People are not going to believe you. They don't believe it when we say it about Australia. Yeah, people are cynical by nature. The idea that you can just, uh, you know, repeat all these wonderful sounding sentiments. All that's going to do is going to add to the racialized language. Man, these Muslims are delusional. And you know, one of the articles Muhammad Tabar wrote was, you know, you, you keep asking about why Muslims are angry. And precisely when you say Islam is peaceful, it doesn't matter. If you give a history to why people are protesting, to why young Muslims are blowing themselves up, at the very least, forget whether they like you or hate you, at the very least, we begin to engage in a history of who we are. But when you attempt to moralize everything and appeal to an abstract Islam, people aren't going to buy it at one fundamental level. You're not. It's just like me coming and telling you, you know, everything about the way I believe in the world is wonderful. You, you can instinctively like, who's this guy? That's the first thing. Now, to go back to very quickly, I'll end. To go back to that group on the anti-Islamophobia of the well-intended brother. First of all, it's one of my pet hatreds. Look, I don't, I don't take my sick child to a mechanic and say, take us tonsils out. I don't go to the janitor at a hospital and say, you know, fix her. All right? I don't. I care about my daughter. So I take her to the right doctor, the right person. Yeah, we do that instinctively. 
For some unknown reason, so many people in our community imagine themselves as experts of politics, as experts of history, as, and inevitably all they are is sponges that have soaked up the prevailing ideology and they intuitively, without study, without jihad in the sense of constantly struggling yeah, to figure out falsehood from truth, without any of these things, and then they privilege this idea of good intention. Well, the train rider who took a train full of Jews to camps had good intentions. They were just following orders. But that self-reflexivity and trying to question how much do you know or how much of the problem have you embodied is also an issue. So I don't have sympathy for that. If you're going to tackle something like anti-racism or anti-Islamophobia, just learn, learn, just read. It, it's such a traumatic thing. I'll open up a blog space, uh, but I won't read a book. It, you know, and that's it. Now, on the final note here, what was interesting about this, it actually undermined so many things. I remember telling you at the time uh, a story that I read up from uh, Zizek, right? There's this story of a haunted house, yeah? So this man comes to this um, town and he goes into a bar and everybody in the bar is talking about this haunted house. They're recalling their fantasies about the time when they first went there and how they were scared and so forth and when they first became a man by traveling to this haunted house and everyone's got a story in relationship to this haunted house so this traveler suddenly decides that he's going to go visit the haunted house yeah to debunk these myths so he goes and he comes back the next day and he says guys guess what it's not haunted you, you've got it wrong you've, you know, he's coming with good intentions you've been you've been mistaken it's not haunted you know what they did they bashed him why their very identity was premised on this fantasy they needed to fantasy so they could have their identity. Whiteness works in a similar way. When Muslims come and say, we too believe in democracy, we t you've got it wrong. The haunted houses, the haunted Islam is not really haunted. It's going to trigger an equally violent response because the true nature of this fantasy is that whiteness has to be a hierarchical order where it judges, where it assumes, where it allows you to enter its society as the good. Yeah? When you try and break down that order, when you try and bring whiteness into visibility or Islam into whiteness, you will always get a bad reaction because it is simply not just about ignorance and whatnot. It is about this hierarchy. And it's a bit like, you know, Prophet Abraham وسلم, when he told the villagers these gods are false. What happened? We all know what happened. Fantasy is what holds together racism at one level and simply bringing reality to it or truth to it is a real threat to it. Uh, in in answer to that or, or in following to that how can how can we combat racism or make sure that we don't internalize it question <laughs> just follow up question to this because i mean there is two questions here first is for the person sorry Nasser, there are two questions here. There are two <laughs> 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 oh my god nasser got corrected somebody write down the date <laughs> it's always good to be corrected um <laughs> So uh, the, the first question is uh, for the person who is benefiting from, from whiteness, the person who is privileged, the person who is not affected by racism, how can they fight this racism? I mean, of course, there are people there who have some awareness of it and they have the guilt for it and they, and they want to, you know, live, I guess, a, um, an honest life. And yeah. A non-racist life. Non-racist life. How would they deal with this? And the second question, of course, is for us Muslims or for people who are dealing with racism, yeah. who are even not Muslim, how do they deal with racism? Uh, I want to be... Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll 
I think the two questions are kind of one, how do we deal with racism and is there a specific Islamic way to deal with it, which I'll get into later. Not, not mm. so much Islamic, even just a, a minority way. Okay, sure. I, I like that because there's a distinction between the majority and the minority. Okay, first thing, I just want to make sure that I'm not totalizing it's an even or. Although I've problematized anti-racism today, I'm not saying we should get rid of it entirely because it does give some people, I mean, it's better it's better to not be sworn at in the street than to be sworn at. It brings so much trauma to people. What I'm worried or cautious about is when we begin to say this is it, this is all that's required. You know, and again, to go back to the analogy of the flu or the sickness that racism, if, you know, it's often said, and I'm not a medical professional, I could get this horribly wrong, correct me, but, you know, if you take your antibiotics but stop halfway through, all you inevitably do is strengthen the virus. So if we inevitably... Wow, that analogy works really well, doesn't it? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it just keeps going. <laughs> if you inevitably stop anti-racism at one point, all you do is work in its favor. So if we don't talk about the material conditions that you know legitimize racism, if we don't talk about the hierarchy that legitimizes, or the fact that we really only tell one, one history of the world, one story of progress. So in order to be successful, you have to repeat that history. In order to be liked or loved, you have to be that object that's in that history. And the closer we become to whiteness, the more successful we become. So at one level, it's not a case of getting rid of anti-racism. It's about expanding it and involving it, continuing it. And you know, at one state in Australia, it really is about the indigenous question. Minorities can talk day in, day out. And the reason why anti-racism fails, in my opinion, Australia is because it fundamentally failed with indigenous people. It did everything other than distribute land properly or return resources properly or empower indigenous people materially. The symbolic gestures and all that is important, but and now it works against it. So we can say, point to where we apologize and so forth. But really, the gap between the privilege and the disadvantage is very wide, and it will continually be wide until real material change occurs. That's a massive challenge. But we don't stop and say, well, we live in a quote-unquote post-racial world. It's wrong now to swear at dark people. Therefore, I'm a good person. No, that becomes a problem. So now, how do minorities respond to that? No, I can only speak on my behalf as a Muslim minority. I went back, and people don't like this answer, <laughs> because there's a level of narcissism involved. We live in a very fast-paced society where people get angry when their Happy Meal doesn't come to them in five minutes. You know, oh my God, I've been waiting in line in Macca's, where's my meal? We get, you know, I'm sure this happens to everybody. We get incredibly frustrated when our internet is taking too long to load the movie downloading. Yeah, this is uh, first world problems. Yeah, okay, and this attitude of fast solutions instantaneous results has penetrated our politics we can't think intergenerationally part of the problem about the ec ecological crisis or the environmental crisis is people aren't interested because the effect is not right here and now you have to start thinking in two or three or four generations solutions do not come to you especially solutions that have been built on 400 years will not come to you within uh, let's pick up the rubbish day and show that muslims care about the environment yeah, let's make a, a ridiculously dumb racist show like Legally Brown that reaffirms. <laughs> it was always going to come. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can watch uh, Legally Brown on SBS. It's streaming. So <laughs> yes. Shout out to Nazim. Yeah. Same, my friend. Yeah, I'd like to shout to Nazim as well. But anyway, um, that reaffirms this hierarchy that you know the brown person always has to perform and play therapist to reduce the anxiety of the white audience. Otherwise, you know they're going to be hysterical. So one point is this: anti-racism should never, uh, never, you know, be seen as something that can be solved. That can, will solve something quickly. We have to have this assumption that it. You have to begin. You know, talk, read, 
speak with the idea that the solutions will come sometime not even positive in your lifetime. Yeah, that's the first thing, and it needs a shift in power. People don't like that because it's too abstract. We we assume pragma and pragmatism here is a wonderful word. Word pragmatism means this: I want you to explain something to me, Yasser, Muhammad, and the co, that I have done before, that I've seen before. I want you to give me an answer where I can say I can go out tomorrow and do that. But when you <laughs> resist in a very institution system by trying to introduce something new, that can't happen. Yeah. So. I, there are multiple ways to deal with it, but the first thing is the patience. That is not to resist the idea that everything that will not give me an A to Z answer within the next year or two is a solution. That's the first thing. So to answer your question in the most practical way, I know this sounds ridiculous. We as a minority have no choice. We need to learn our politics. And it needs to move beyond the superficial stuff. It needs to move beyond demonizing the West to absolutely critiquing the West through a sustained conversation we have of ourselves and our tradition so we can stand in a position to counter their historical narrative with our own historical narrative. That will take God knows how long. And maybe it won't be successful. But it is, an, and I have faith that that necessity to remove yourself from being an observed thing to an observer, removing yourself from being the thing that's constantly having to play therapist Oh, we're not, we're not a threat. We're not bad. We're not this. To a observer, I'm not interested. I want to talk about how Islam can speak of e economics, the environment, how it can dismantle patriarchy, its own patriarchy, how it can challenge you know, capitalism's inequalities. That is what's needed. And we can only do that through skilled and sustained readers, which means, I'm sorry, all those people who have good intentions, take a step back. Learn your stuff because you're part of the problem. You're clogging up the system at the moment. And in a society where government and all other forms of elite want the good Muslim to kind of cover up yeah, the, the problem. What I mean by this is we have Muslims saying, oh, it's because they've misread the Quran and they don't know what jihad really means. It has an inner peace. You know, the moment you say that, you legitimize the war on terror now. You legitimize that the problem is a bunch of Muslims who, have, who are so dumb they don't know their own religion. The moment you do that, and this is what really annoys me, Muslims began to have their inter-debates, say, masalan, between Tasawwuf and Salafi, and they superimpose this debate on the war on terror narrative. So yes, we have tensions between Salafis and Sufis, but it is not the tension between peaceful, loving Muslims and terrorists. But we superimpose that narrative. We gave the theological you know, ground yeah, that helped the war on terror narrative to believe there's good and bad Muslims. And even now at LMA, they're creating this radicalization history that the you know the, the the radicals come from Saudi Arabia and they've misinterpreted certain things and so forth. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. So now we get Sufis who want to believe that the problem is a religious reading, and that's what's frustrating. You have to exit this. And I know it's a long-winded answer, but my my only solution that I can give, quote unquote, to your question as a minority, know your history, read it well, and I don't mean repeat it counter it, challenge it, contest it, read it from the position of the Salafi, the Sufi, the the Hezbi even, yeah? <laughs> All right. Everyone's smiles at that. <laughs> All right. From that position. And as much as that is a fairy tale answer, it's the only one that I believe in at the moment. Thank you very much, brother. I think for now, uh, we would love to stay with you for another couple of hours, but unfortunately we've come to the end of our show. So I would like to thank you, Jazakallah and uh, brother Yasser. Uh, and inshallah next time you come to um, Sydney 
because I know you're leaving tomorrow, inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. Uh, so next time you're coming to Sydney, um can I say hello to my kids? No. Yes, definitely. Yes. No. Not, not that they will listen to this. Yes, yes, they have. Say hi to May Allah uh, preserve them, protect them, and make Amen, them a source of happiness for their parents uh, and protect their parents also from their foolishness on Facebook. Inshallah. Both parents? Both parents. Oh, uh, well, you know, just Both the one parent that I know. I don't know the other parent. Both <laughs> 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 I'll yeah. we'll just end the interview nicely. Yeah, well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, like I said, you're always invited on the show uh, whenever you come to Sydney. Thank, thank you to both you and Sister Anna as well. As well. Yeah. And uh, Brother Muhammad Sabah, thank you again for uh, your contributions and for. Sitting there, <laughs> giggling. Well, he's, he's, com- he's coming up next. Yes. Uh, next week, Various inshallah. Contributions. <laughs> next week, inshallah, we'll be hosting Brother Muhammad Sabah uh, fully. Uh, inshallah. You're there, bro. Uh, he has to put the accent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you Fully can understand. <laughs> Fully sick. Uh, so that we can uh, we talk about uh, the Speaking problem. racism. <laughs> <laughs> the problem of, of human rights and how to deconstruct that. I don't know if deconstruct is right, but uh, thank you, Anna Rose, as well, for um, co-hosting. That's cool. And this is your host, Nasser Khatib, thanking you and uh, bidding you a good night. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.